Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make a big impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host this week. Jim Zippo of 98.7 K-Love. Thank you for joining us. Later on this hour, we'll focus on foster care during this COVID-19 crisis, as well as training to see if you might be the right match to be a foster parent. But first, this crisis has caused the cancellation of a lot of events for nonprofits in North Texas, and June is Alzheimer's Brain and Awareness Month. Joining us on the phone now is Audrey Quick, Program Director with the Alzheimer's Association, North Central Texas Chapter in Fort Worth. Hey, Jim. How are you? Couldn't be better. It's an awesome weekend. Hope you're doing well, too. So tell me about what you all are doing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the air with you this morning. No problem. Totally our pleasure. Um, it is my privilege to be talking to you about the Alzheimer's Association June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, so it is an amazing opportunity to start a conversation about our brains, our brain health, Alzheimer's disease, and all other dementias. You know, Audrey, i got to be honest with you. I have a little skin in this game, so to speak. My wife and I went through this. Uh, as a matter of fact, my father-in-law, her dad, had Alzheimer's. We didn't know it. She used to drive back and forth from Dallas down to Houston, where he was living alone. His wife had passed on. And uh, my wife would take care of him, put food in the pantry, put food in the refrigerator, and uh, you know, take him to Luby's. He loved going to Luby's. He just <laughs> loved that. And he'd be all set, right? And then my wife would get back in the car, drive all the way back from Houston to Dallas, and uh, about an hour after she arrived in Dallas, she'd get a phone call from him saying, hey, I have nothing in the pantry. I got nothing in the refrigerator. I need you to come right. down immediately and help get me some supplies. Right. And that was our first clue. Something wasn't yeah. quite right. It often happens that way. When people hear about Alzheimer's, the first thing that comes into their head is memory issues and memory problems because that's one of the most visible early signs. Um, and, you know, it, it's also very interesting that you bring up your father-in-law. My dad has Alzheimer's. And when I started telling people that he had been diagnosed, almost every single person I spoke to knew somebody in their family um, and, and were able to identify completely with what I was going through. And um, that was the first indication to me about how many lives are touched and how many families, you know, suffer with this disease. So uh, your, your wife's story is not unusual. Yeah. And, of course, we decided, you know, there's no way he could stay down there in Houston by himself. Didn't seem to be able to get a grip on what was happening. So we moved him up, and uh, we purchased a property, and uh, we built a whole wing of the house just for him. And we yeah. designed it uh, using uh, medical care folks so they could, Tell us exactly what would be the best way to do it, like customized shower with real easy-to-operate equipment in it. And, uh, you know, we just made it a whole, almost a mini house inside of our house to make it a lot like his other house so he'd feel right yeah. at home. But, you know, one thing we noticed about the uh, the dementia, I, I guess we didn't really realize it for a while, but um, he could remember things back in World War II. He'd tell us about, oh, yeah, I remember I was out there and we were fighting, and the boys were doing this and the other, and we took that island. And he can tell us something from 60 years ago, but he can't remember to button his shirt. So right. it was the immediate, right. immediate memory seemed like it was the thing that was gone. 
I know that's something else that, you know, can be so difficult about the disease for families to be able to identify when there is a problem because the disease spreads through the brain and the brain controls everything. But long and short-term memory are stored in different places on the brain. Um, So the first area to be affected is the area uh, that affects short-term memory. But, you know, early in the disease, other parts of the brain are unaffected. So it can seem like there's nothing wrong except just these occasional lapses in short-term memory. And they really are signs that families need to go and, you know, get it checked out and get it addressed. Audrey, after we wrap up here in a few minutes, Brooke Boatwright will be speaking, manager for the longest day in Dallas and Northeast Texas. Tell me about what you're doing in Fort Worth. Sure. So the Alzheimer's Association is a national association. It it has offices all over the place. So we have a sister office in Dallas. Um, Not only is the Alzheimer's Association the largest nonprofit fundraiser Mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's research, but it's also the center of hope and help for people who are, you know, walking this journey with Alzheimer's and dementia and their families. So what we do here locally, we work with caregivers, we help enhance care and support, we provide resources, and we also work with people with dementia. A lot of times you hear or you think about people with dementia as being elderly, but there is actually a subset of the population that gets dementia long before their golden years. Uh, we call it early onset dementia. Yeah, I heard about that. that. That'd be weird. Imagine being in your 30s. I know. I know. And, you know, when it happens in families that are raising children, it's really, really challenging. So we work with those families. We provide services. We put them in touch with people that they need to, to talk to to help them out. We also have support groups. We provide education programs. It's really important for the community to be educated. You know, you might have a coworker uh, who's taking care of someone with Alzheimer's or dementia, and it's just different from taking care of someone with another illness or disease. It's a different level of stress. It's oh, a different yeah. level of caregiving. And um, so, you know, providing that community education is really important. And then providing, as I said, the support to the caregiver. A lot of times caregivers, their own health will suffer because they are spending so much time and so much energy caregiving for somebody else. And they fail to take care of their own health issues, uh, which is heartbreaking. Uh, I, I think one of the worst things about Alzheimer's and dementia is the effect it has on the families and in addition to the person suffering with the disease. It's a really tough disease for a family to go through. This is Brain Awareness Month, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. And, you know, we focus an awful lot on our physical health, and we don't talk very often about brain health. And everything that you do to maintain your physical health, things like, you know, nutrition, exercise, uh, maintaining a healthy weight, not smoking, all of those things are really good for your brain. But it's also important for people to know that there are other things, too, that you might not think of, right? So things like staying socially active is so important for brain health. Um, So, hey, it gives us a good excuse to socialize. But we also need to make sure that we're lifelong learners and, you know, always, no matter what your age or stage in life, to be willing to learn something new, take up a new hobby, learn a new skill, make a new friend, become, you know, active in your community, volunteer. All of those things, surprisingly, uh, pay off enormous rewards with your brain health and with maintaining brain health as you age. Social butterfly. Kind of. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a little bit, you know. It's nice to have Facebook friends, but it's really important to have people to get right in their face, literally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, that's hard to do right now today. But yeah. hopefully uh, we'll get back to where we can do it all in person again soon. I got to say, yeah, that's got to be tough during COVID-19, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, particularly tough for caregivers who are caregiving for someone with dementia at home. Uh, it's a particularly challenging time, and we're very happy to have the opportunity to be able to support them in every way that we can. So we've moved all of our education programs and our support groups to online, our phone, and um, we're there, and we make sure that we are there. 
We also have a helpline um, that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can talk to a real human being really? um, if you have any questions. Okay, and what's that number? The number for the helpline is 800-272-3900. And, of course, you can always find us on the web at alz.org, also 24-7. Alzheimer's doesn't quit, and we won't either. Now, what are some of the things you can do to promote a healthy brain of, you know, let's say eating certain things or taking certain medicines? I mean, I don't know. I get emails from friends all the time, people telling me, oh, you got to try this, you know, if you want to stay healthy and smart and fresh and sharp. And I, people just come up with so many different ideas. Well, what's the medicine? What does the medical world say? Well, there, there really are a lot of things that you can do. So, you know, aerobic exercise, mm-hmm. stop smoking, yeah. avoid excessive alcohol. Something that we hear about more and more today is making sure you get adequate sleep. That's really important in maintaining uh, brain health. But even things like avoiding head injuries and preventing falls, you know, they're things to look at even, you know, with our children when they're playing sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to manage stress in our lives. And it is important to visit, you know, your doctor regularly. Make sure that you are monitoring your weight and blood pressure and treating any underlying conditions. And then when it comes to things like diet and nutrition, you know, everything that you hear, fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, lean meats, all of those things, plenty of water, um, all of those things are really important. So, you know, just a regular lifestyle changes that put you on a healthier path for your body definitely help maintain your brain health too maybe less junk food huh (laughs) well of course yeah that kind of goes with that saying (laughs) i'm glad i haven't i have never smoked i have never smoked which is good i think that's probably healthy but i've been around my my parents smoked like smokestacks and so i probably until i was 16 years old i was still getting smoke in there but yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I've, I've had some time mine, with mine did too. Yeah, <laughs> with some clean air, so it's not yeah. so bad. So, I what are the financial costs of uh, loved oh, one having God. loved one having Alzheimer's? A lot of people you don't know, have an idea what they're getting into. We didn't, and we learned right. quickly it was a big surprise, and a lot of adjustments needed to be made. Oh, it is an incredibly expensive disease. You know, Alzheimer's is so different compared to other life-threatening diseases because it's not something that can be treated medically. So there is no medical treatment and there is no medical cure. Oh, man. And it affects the person in so many different ways to the point where they need 24-hour care. And that is unbelievably expensive. So according to the 2020 Alzheimer's facts and figures, the cost of caring for people with Alzheimer's and dementia in the United States today is $305 billion dollars. And, you know, it's important to be aware of the financial burden that puts on families. Um, you know, it, it takes it past the numbers when you think, what, hap- what would happen if somebody in my family, if, you know, a parent developed Alzheimer's? How would I financially be able to take care of them? And then even beyond that, you know, it concerns me. You know, what would happen to my children if, if that happened to me? Or, you know, even worse, what if they were to face a disease like Alzheimer's as they age? And I think when you look at it from not just the devastating effect it has on the person, but the enormous financial burden it places, it makes it, you know, even more important and even more compelling to make sure that you do everything in your power to live a healthy life, to maintain your brain health, to maintain the brain health of your children, uh, you know, spread the word to people around you, and also to educate yourself about Alzheimer's and dementia um, and seek help the second you have any concerns about someone that you love. Well, we had Medicare, or he had Medicare, and that was very helpful. Yes. Turned out. Yes. Had a nice nurse that came to visit him all the time, and she almost became like a family member. It was really amazing. So helpful. Good, good. That's lovely. That's really nice to hear. I think my wife heard her back (laughs) over the period of time when, you know, near the end when we were doing everything for him. I think she heard her back pretty badly, you know, she's had some surgeries. But it was a labor of love. Let me tell you something. They loved that guy so much. And there were moments of clarity that were just priceless. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
So th- yes, a beautiful gift. You I cannot just exactly give up on people. You can't. Yeah. They, they will surprise you, and you'll find moments of clarity. And the better they live, I think, at least the better he lived, um, the better he was able to be taken care of and eat good food and you know live in a good environment with family. I think that's yeah. really important. I think the better yeah. his life was. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why we strongly encourage people to go and have a conversation with their doctor as soon as they suspect that there might be something wrong. And it's something that, you know, people tend to put off because they don't want to hear the bad news and they don't Aww. want to know, right? <laughs> but the sooner you know, you know, the more you can make sure that the person has a higher quality of life. And as devastating as the diagnosis of the disease is, there's still a lot of beautiful life to be lived. Yes, there is. Um, even, even with a disease like Alzheimer's. But, you know, you have to have the right tools. You have to have the right support. Um, and you have to have the right structures in place. And the sooner you can do that, the longer uh, your loved one with the disease will, will continue to thrive. So I'm glad that you had such a such a good experience with your father-in-law. Well, yeah, it was tough, but it was it was. I mean, yeah. I look back at it, and I think, you know, I think I think we uh, helped him with the end of his life a whole lot, and uh, yeah. j- just being there, I think, was the main thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Audrey Quick, program director, North Central Texas chapter in Fort Worth. Have a fabulous day and continue uh with the work you're doing there for the alzheimer's association we really appreciate you talking with us wonderful jim thank you very much thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about alzheimer's today and uh, enjoy the rest of your day thanks audrey you too and up next brooke boatwright manager for the longest day in dallas in northeast texas hello brooke hello how's it going pretty good Tell me about your organization, and what is The Longest Day exactly? That is a great question. So The Longest Day is one of the Alzheimer's Association's signature fundraising campaigns. Uh, so we have our Walked in Alzheimer's, we've got galas, we've got rivals, all kinds of other fun stuff. Um, but The Longest Day is definitely a very different kind of campaign um, than what you're used to. It's a DIY. Um, so The Longest Day is the day with the most light, the summer solstice, and it's the day the Alzheimer's Association calls on everyone to select any activity they like and turn it into a fundraiser to benefit the care, support, and research efforts of the association. Now, that's June 20th, right? Yes, it is June 20th, Leap Year Day. Now, the longest day is actually a reference to the Alzheimer's uh, situation that you'd have with somebody that has Alzheimer's, and it seems like it's a day that never ends for them, huh? Yeah, for sure. Our caregivers really work 24-7, and, and the least we could do is support them in their fight. There's there's 16 hours of sunlight on the longest day, so we try to encourage people, if they can, um, to do whatever activity they want for the whole 16 hours. Wow. guess you could let your imagination run pretty wild coming up with events for that. So we're not really talking about an event that you're doing, but asking people to come up with an event of their own. It's 100% DIY, so if you want to do a 15-minute event or a 16-hour event, it really is up to you. Huh. The key to the thing, of course, raise as much money as you can to help more people with Alzheimer's. And folks can use their imagination, right? They do indeed. So they they turn whatever activity they like to do into a fundraiser and so it'll benefit all the research. Now that's one terrific cause and I do applaud you for it. By the way, uh, Brooke, have you had personal experience, anybody in your family or your circle that's had Alzheimer's? I am very lucky and very thankful. I actually don't have any uh, parents or grandparents affected by the disease. Well, you're very fortunate. I do have plenty of uh, friends um, who do have loved ones affected. So Aww. I'm definitely doing this doing this for them and for uh, my future babies. Now, what do people need to do to get involved with this longest day? Uh, super easy. They just go online. Uh, the website is alz.org slash the longest day mm-hmm. um, then they register there they select their activity or if they don't know what to do there's an option to say i don't know what i want to do and then we can reach out and help so zip to the web or uh, i guess you could also zip to the phone there is a phone number 
Um, so that is uh, 1-800-272-3900. Uh, that's the Alzheimer's Association's 24-7 helpline number. Uh, Brooke, if you don't mind, could you give us the phone number and website one more time for folks just writing it down? Of course. That phone number is one 800 272 3900. And the website to register for the longest day is alz.org slash the longest day. And Brooke, do you have volunteers that can help out with ideas? Do a little brainstorming if somebody's come up with something? Yes, we have plenty of volunteers, but I will also say we don't have enough volunteers. Oh, you need more. We do indeed. Uh, Our volunteers are, are amazing and I really cannot do my job without them. Now, how can they get, how can they get involved? How can they uh, join your organization if they'd like to? They can just call that 800 number or call the local offices and let us know that they want to get involved. Hmm. That's amazing. I was looking at some of these facts. One in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or other dementia. I didn't know it was that high. Yeah, it's a lot. It actually kills more than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. Well, I mean, it affects your brain, and that kind of runs the whole machine, right? Yeah, it's it's awful. 400,000 Texans have Alzheimer's. That's an amazing statistic. I have no idea. Yeah, those numbers are outrageous. Now, Texas ranks fourth in number of Alzheimer's cases and second in Alzheimer's death. So uh, this is definitely the hot spot. Not just literally because of the temperatures, but because this is where a lot of the Alzheimer's patients are. It is the cause you definitely want to fight for. It's, I would say it's a it's kind of a public health crisis Aww. right now. And it's the fifth leading cause of death in America, too. Yes, it is. Here's a factoid that'll blow your mind. Someone develops Alzheimer's disease every 65 seconds. Wow. Yeah, it's. It's a lot, and it is not slowing down until we find a cure or a treatment. Can you give me an example of, uh, like, an activity somebody might want to do or things that you've done in the past? Yeah, so for Longest Day, our participants really can do anything and everything. I have seen some weird and crazy stuff. Um, We have some some normal events, like they run and get pledges for their fundraiser. Um, We have golf tournaments, fishing tournaments poker tournaments, things like that. Uh, We have people who play board games, karaoke night, trivia night. We've got some virtual stuff going on. And my personal favorite, the Wacky Wager. What is the Wacky Wager? Oh, my gosh. It is the best. That is what I personally did for my fundraiser. Um, I did it right when we started uh, all of our quarantining. Um, So what I did was tell my friends and family, hey, I'll do this weird thing um, if I raise a certain amount of money. So I got donations to eat a spicy pepper, uh, to put makeup on my boyfriend. Oh, man. Um, and some, <laughs> some other weird stuff, yeah. So uh, walkathons, lemonade stands, uh, mm-hmm. auctions, you, you name it, just uh, whatever you come up with, car shows, hot dog eating contests. I mean, the sky's the limit pretty much. It's a big day, the longest day, and so there's plenty of time to get something done during that and raise a little money and awareness for Alzheimer's. 16 hours, that's a lot of time for a big event on June 20th. Yeah, and it actually, we try to get people to do their activity on June 20th, but I did mine early. If Halloween is your jam, do your event on Halloween. We we really just try to encourage um, people to do what they like to do and do it when it, when they like to do it. Yep, Alzheimer's doesn't wait for a specific day. No, we don't. We've got things to do. Now, this is nationwide, right? Longest day, it's uh, not just a local chapter? It is nationwide. We have uh, chapters in every state across the country, and, of course, Texas is gigantic, so we've got a few different chapters throughout the state, um, and then all of our staff are here to help. I'm clicking on the website right now. There it is, the longest day. I got it. Okay, about the longest day. The longest day is the day with the most light. Summer solstice, June 20th, thousands of participants from across the world come together to fight the darkness of Alzheimer's. I like the way that's worded. That's very clever. I think so, too. An activity of your choice. Use your creativity and passion. Raise funds and awareness for the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. That's just amazing. Brooke, how big is your organization locally? How many people do you have? 
Ooh, locally, um, I know the, the Fort Worth area has about 40, the Dallas area has about 20, and we have way more volunteers, so we are spread out all over the place. Gosh, this is, this is just a great thing to do. It is incredible. We have people all over the world participate. Um, we actually had last year um, a group of ladies. They all lived in 16 different countries, so they fundraised and posted pictures at sunrise from all over the world, and it was really incredible to see. And there's a matching gifts program, too, I understand. Yes, you'll have to visit the, the ALZ.org website, and that has a lot of information for you. As many employers offer programs that match charitable contributions made by their employees, double or possibly triple your donation effort to the longest day, increase funding for the care, support, and research efforts of Alzheimer's Association. So you can find out there, all the information is also there on the website, like you say. You can also volunteer. It shows you also uh, what your dollars do. The It says here, investing over $185 million in more than 540 active best-of-field projects in 27 countries. So you're global. We are global. We definitely interview and we pick our, our researchers very carefully. We have a whole board of scientists and business people who, who make sure we really are utilizing our donor dollars to, to the best that we can. And we, we don't just say our best researchers are in America. They really all are all over the world. And it's local. Local North Texas Alzheimer's Association needs. It says here, every dollar raised benefits those affected by Alzheimer's disease right here in north texas so it's not just uh, it's global reach but your local dollars go to local help yeah it does we have uh, tons of programs and services that are local and our services are free uh, so we've got education presentations and care consultations and really anything you could need locally uh, and since we are all over the country it's pretty easy to catch us well, I know I'm speaking for a lot of people who have had friends and loved ones with Alzheimer's, and what you're doing is awesome. What else do you do? You do anything besides the longest day on June 20th? I mean, are you at work on June 21st coming up with something else? Uh, we do the longest day year-round. So really, uh, sunrise to sunset on June 20th, but then we do it all over again on June 21st. Uh-huh. Uh, we are constantly recruiting, constantly planning activities and fun events all year-round. What's the biggest thing you guys have done that you can recall? Oh, that's a great question. So one of the one of the cool things that um, we had a participant do, he lived in Dallas. And he got pledged from prison family, and he actually flew to Colorado and did a triple peak spike ride. He raised about $16,000, I believe, to do that. It was pretty incredible. Wow. I'm looking at some of the top performers here. Uh, A group called BFBO 2019 raised $286,000. Bridge Club raised 101000 That's a bridge club. Wow. Yes, actually, uh, the American Contract Bridge League is one of our global teams or, or national partners for the longest day. Mm-hmm. Um, so they play bridge and they fundraise, um, and it goes towards their longest day team. They're actually pretty incredible. A 5K run walk raised $34,000. Dance the night away party raised $32,000. This is amazing. Run, yes. run for Gigi. I'm assuming Gigi was as an Alzheimer's patient or was. I'm not sure. Golf, the hug golf outing raised eleven thousand dollars. See, now that's thinking outside the box. The people doing it are having fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our events are pretty all over the place. We do have a lot of running and a lot of bridge, and as you can see, they're very successful activities for the longest day. The Phantom Trail Half Marathon 10K, $72,000. Wow. (laughs) Well, there's a lot you can do, and it doesn't just have to be on the longest day, June 20th. So uh, get some information for yourself. Look it up. And uh, once again, Brooke, on the web, what's the address? It's alv.org slash the longest day. Okay. And the phone number, if you could give that to us for people listening that want to get involved. That phone number is 1-800-272-3900. On the web, alz.org. 
and click on what it is you want to do. They're on Facebook, too, at facebook.com slash A-L-Z-N-C-T. They have a list of events, too. And the phone number again, 800-272-3900. Hopefully, the COVID-19 crisis is going to chill down a little bit, and folks will be able to get out and about and do some things. But you can always be creative and come up with something that only requires people staying indoors. Maybe you could do it over Facebook. There's all kinds of creative things you could do. We try to encourage people, if they can, um, to do whatever activity they want for the whole 16 hours. This has been very informative. Enjoyed talking with both you, Brooke, and Audrey Quick. So thank you very much, and God bless you for all the good work you're doing, and keep it up. Thank you so much. You're welcome, and good luck with this upcoming June 20th, Longest Day. Next on Better Living, Travis Jones, Director of Community Engagement. Presbyterian Children's Homes and Services in the DFW area. Almost 4,000 children are in foster care. Some will return to their birth families. Some will become available for adoption. A lot of them are school age with siblings that want to stay together. Just one of the many moving parts that the organization deals with all the time. Hi, Travis. Hi, how are you? Great, and welcome this morning to Better Living. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, this is a huge need that we have in our community. And... Um, uh, it's one that people need to learn about. We all kind of have a sense that we know what foster care is or what adoption is, but the nuts and bolts of it may be a little bit more complicated. So getting to the heart of it, we have a lot of kids in Texas that because of abuse or neglect, really at no fault of their own, they can't live with their families. And so we have a great need for kids that need families. They need a place where they can be loved and safe while their birth families, you know, working hard to be put back together and reunified with each other. Now, that's a, that's a real goal, right? To get back with, uh, you know, your family, the original family, if possible. But sometimes I'm sure it's not. That's right. But it, it is the number one goal. And so in each and every situation, this is a legal case. And so whenever there's a situation, the state has to intervene. Really, their aim is to put families back together, that, uh, that they help families uh, make it a home and a family environment safe for kids and that everybody's able to be back under one roof. That's our aim, too. That's what we're trying to do, trying to help kids to be healthy and whole, trying to help, you know, cheer on those families in that process, too, and uh, provide really great care for the kids while we do that. Man, that's some serious multitasking. Tell me exactly how this process works. You know, we all have a responsibility in our community that if we think a child's being abused or neglected, we've got to make a report. And so the, the Texas Abuse Hotline receives those calls. Um, and, and the state law defines abuse and neglect. So not just, you know, anything would result in foster care, but, um, you know, certain things are going to warrant an investigation. And uh, as the state looks more closely into that, uh, when they identify that a child has been abused or neglected children, and, you know, sibling groups, many of the kids that we serve are in sibling groups, um, they're going to be looking to see, you know, what can they do to make that environment safe? So, uh, you know, last year, there were over 100,000 children that were confirmed as victims of abuse and neglect, which is, which is terrible. But like 27,000 families receive what they call family-based safety services. So that would be where the state comes in and tries to help build up the family while the kids get to stay there and try to you know, provide resources and training and education support, try to keep the family together, spare the kids as much loss as possible. So, but then there are times that kids have to be removed into foster care. So it's going to be when they have been abused and neglected, it's been investigated, it's been found that that's all to be true, that it's not safe for them to stay in the home, that foster care is really a last resort type of a situation. It's not something that just happens quickly, which can be a myth, you know, uh, uh, in the community that, you know, people come and take your kids away. That's not a swift thing. That's not something that happens easily. Judges have to review that and order a removal. And so when kids come into a foster home, mm-hmm. To say that it's a bit chaotic is a bit of an understatement, actually, because it's, it's just a really busy time. It's a crisis moment for that family. It's a crisis for the child. It's a crisis, really, in our community because we've got people that aren't supported, that aren't safe. And so we need families that can say yes and that can receive those kids and begin focusing on their needs and how to, how to help them in this really difficult time. Now, how do you screen the families? That's a, that's a process. So we walk with families in a real um, mutual process. So we're, they know that we're looking at them closely. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork involved. There's, there's training classes, a detailed assessment. But we also ask the families to be assessing us. So as an, as an organization, 
we want them to be confident in who they're partnering with and, and knowing that they can trust us, just like we want to know that we can trust them. And so uh, there's a lot of conversation. We spend a lot of time together in training classes. There's, there's some things that are kind of you know, rules and regulations. A lot that's about understanding the trauma of abuse and neglect, how it impacts kids, and then what we can do to help kids heal from that, how we can help kids to really you know, be resilient, to thrive, to heal, and, and how parents can have great effective tools that, are, that really help kids to do well in light of the difficult things that they've experienced. So uh, it's a process that we work together through that. There's a lot of paperwork because we obviously have to do, you know, significant background checks and a lot of other documentation that's in that process. And so we have staff that walk hand-in-hand with families to complete all of those steps, make sure that their questions are answered, make sure that we understand all of it, and that, uh, you know, by the time that we complete the process, we all feel really good about this partnership that we're forming uh, on behalf of kids. And so our team's pretty agile, pretty flexible. We work one-on-one with families and have the ability to, to complete the process usually in about, you know, 90 days, sometimes even less than that. Um, but then there's we also take into consideration that a lot of families, you know, there may be reasons that they need it to go a little bit slower uh, or that they need some time to kind of stop and think. And so we, you know, we, we keep working with people. We don't want people to kind of lose their, lose their steam. Usually they contact us because they want to, Parent kids, they want to they want to take care of kids. They want to serve. Uh, they don't use a college because they want to fill out paperwork and go to classes. So uh, we we try to help them get through the process of being approved, so that we can help them move into the stuff that we know that they're that they're well suited for. Now, when children are in foster care, what happens with their birth parents? I mean, like you say, there are so many different moving parts and so many different people on so many different levels. Yeah, so, and this process is really all about their birth, birth family, which is kind of interesting because that, that takes the back seat on, on a lot of cases. So, um, you know, the children are, the, they are the children of their parents, and so it's a legal case between their, their parents and the state. So the parents have, you know, uh, what's called a service plan, where basically the judge has ordered that their children are in the uh, conservatorship of the state of Texas, Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, and becomes the legal parent during this time. And then they have um, steps that they have to take, that they've got to be able to show that, you know, that they're making the home and family environment safe for kids, that um, there's, you know, no substance abuse going on, or that there's a safe place to live, that there's no family violence, or taking parenting classes and different things. You know, it's going to be customized for each family based on their needs and whatever challenges have been present for them. Uh, and then a huge component is that they're going to have weekly visitation with their children. So... That's supervised, typically at a CPS office where the birth family would come to the office and then our foster family would bring the children into the office for that visit and um, and they would get time together where the children and the, and the parents can, um, you know, talk and visit and play games or work on homework or, you know, do all kinds of, uh, you know, whatever they have sort of during that time to be able to be together to help maintain their connection and their bond and um, to be able to enjoy enjoy that time that they have. Well, it's definitely a labor of love there, Travis. Hey, I read something about this kinship program. What's that all about? Yeah, so um, also for the, for the family during that time, uh, the, the birth parents will have the chance to submit the name, to, you know, contact information, that kind of stuff for relatives, so through blood or marriage or people that are close family friends, to, to be considered as what's called a kinship placement. And we know how important it is for kids to stay a part of their story. They've got to stay connected. Or it's it's meaningful for kids to be able to stay connected to their story and their other, you know, uh, relatives, mm-hmm. even part of their family tree, you're really close to it. And so kinship families often can provide that more naturally. Their grandparents or the aunts and uncles, the cousins, the best friends, oh, okay. uh, all, all those kinds of people. And so um, there's an assessment process for those folks. It's not the same as for foster care, but, uh, you know, if they become approved, then that's seen as, as a successful um, situation as well. The birth parents are going to have about 12 months to work on that service plan that I mentioned to you and to be able to show the court that they're ready for their kids to come back home. But if we can get kids to a relative sooner than that, that is, that's a successful outcome as well. And, uh, and then we, we have the ability to work with kinship caregivers as well to help them gain additional support. So for most foster and adoptive families, they typically have thought about it for a while. And the, the data would tell us usually it's years. Uh, for kinship families, they often have very little notice. Uh, you know, maybe it's hours or weeks or 
maybe months, but typically it's a pretty fast turnaround that they've got to decide to care for kids that they love, you know, that they that they want to to be a part of their family. And so um, we we really have kind of a sensitive spot. We're coming alongside those families to help them get additional training and support and resources to help them uh, know how to meet the special needs of, of their kids and uh, understand kind of things that have happened. And then there's also some resources through the state that are available to families uh, kinship families when they walk through the process of becoming approved for foster care or adoption. And so we can help them have resources that could be lasting a long time. We've seen many, many families through the years that um, maybe grandparents that are retired and have taken in three or four of their grandkids and kind of starting over late in life. And uh, while they're not in it for the money in any way, financially that's just a lot to, to say yes to. And so um, we want them to be able to have resources and supports that help them to be secure and stable and provide everything that the kids need and, and again, providing all that kind of good clinical social worker support and um, just understand the legal ins and outs and all that kind of stuff. Well, you might find a really good match, you know, find a a couple that really needs a little uh, extra company and uh, doesn't have grandchildren of their own, perhaps. Maybe that would be a real good mix. Absolutely. And some of our foster families that we see that are really successful, I mean, they they come in all shapes and sizes, but I've, I've met through the years many families that, Maybe they're empty nesters or they're becoming empty nesters, but they know they're not done being parents and they really enjoy that role. And so um, we, you know, we love to work with folks. Uh, we, we really, we will talk to families of all ages and kind of makeups because we know that our kids are unique. And so they need uh, unique offerings of families to be available. Is there ever a case where uh, a youth cannot be reunited with their family and they're also not adopted? Now, why does that happen? Yeah, so it, those are that's kind of the worst case scenario in, yeah. in, for us in most in most situations. And so, um, you know, I, I spoke earlier about reunification, and that is the goal. That can't always happen, but we see that roughly fifty percent of the time in 2019 of the children that exited the foster care system in Texas, I think it was 51 percent of those kids either went home to their birth parents or to another relative. But there's also going to be times that the kids are not able to go home to their relatives or that right. their their families aren't successful. And so typically that, that could lead to actually the termination of parental rights where the judge would sever that relationship between the parent and children, um, which makes them uh, usually legally available for adoption. But there's a lot of loss inherent to that. And so when we see that kids, their parental rights are terminated and there's not an adoptive family. Wow. Um, when they turn 18 years old, legally they can emancipate from the foster care system or age out, the terminology that we use there. And, you know, they could stay by choice in foster care until they're 22 years old, but they often don't. And unfortunately, the stats for youth that age out of the foster care system are just, they're, they're not good. And, and it's really heartbreaking. It's one of those drivers of why we do what we do, because we know that having a permanent connection with a family that loves and supports a child really can change the future. Well, there are all kinds of possible outcomes. You kind of look at the good and, uh, yeah, face this too, I suppose. How did you fall into this? That's a great question. So it kind of found me, uh, which was a surprise. Uh, it's not something I went looking for, but uh, that was over 15 years ago. And so I, I am all in. But through the years, I've met so many incredible families. Uh, and and I, what I really also found was that I already had many foster and adoptive families around me. I just kind of wasn't paying attention to it, or I didn't realize that that was part of my world and my sphere. I've got relatives. Uh, you know, my family eventually, we became foster parents and adopted, and, um, and so it has become very personal. But uh, it, was, it wasn't a place I started looking for. I, a lot of my colleagues, they, they've kind of always known they wanted to work in this, in this area, but... I think that's something that's important in our community is realizing that you know these these are our kids, these are our neighbors, these are our you know we we can't just say it's somebody else's issue or problem or expect somebody else to step forward. Like they there are kids that need families, and without that, then they're the kids have to sleep in offices or they have to sleep in hotel rooms and be supervised by workers or stay in shelters and things like that until we can find a family. And and I just believe that as a community, we can do a lot better than that. And so we need people to to kind of be able to hear the message. That's why we bang that drum loud is is we want people to know that this is an important need and they have the opportunity to step in, even if they've never 
really thought of it before. Um, this could be a part of their life, too, and they could do an amazing job. Travis, what's something the community can do to prevent situations like this from even happening, if possible? Prevention on the, on the first hand is realizing that uh, we are all connected, and you know, the problems that one family faces, uh, they may not be my problems, but they're my community. They're my neighbors. They're people that I can step in and I can try to support. Looking the other way doesn't help. It definitely doesn't help kids. And so um, they're not easy answers. These are not easy solutions, but looking to find ways that we can resource families, that we can pay attention to tired, stressed, overworked parents, that we can look for people that are vulnerable or don't have good support or so many issues that are going on around us right now and, and, and realizing that we all have a role. Certainly to say, not my problem, that's not the correct answer and that's not going to get us to where we need to be. I guess sometimes the kids find themselves in a weird situation. Yeah, and sometimes kids will, in certain ways, let us know that things are going on. We have to be willing to pay attention to that, not dismiss it, right. not overlook it. And uh, it's it's also important that uh, you know that we create space and opportunities that kids could speak out. But we can't rely on children to be of course um, not be be able to do that for themselves. And so we, we do have to be watchful and we do have to be mindful. So I'll give you an example of that. The other day, my son had a uh, like a telemedicine visit with the doctor for something. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the visit, she said, all right, now I want you to uh, open your mouth real wide. All right, I want you to turn your head to the side. I want to look at this. You're not looking to do this. I want to see you breathe. And afterward, I was, I was you know, tell my wife, I'm like, good, good job. I'm glad she did that. She's like, well, it's kind of weird. Like, yeah, yeah, she wasn't. I don't think she can really do her job, but she needed she need to examine it. You know, people need to keep an eye on kids and make sure that they're not being abused or mistreated in some way that they appear healthy and, and you can look for signs of abuse or things that are not, you know, um, developing properly in children. Uh, and that's important. We all have a watchful eye. So Your focus is definitely in the right place on the kids. They didn't do anything wrong. They're the victims. That's right. But, and, and I think that's something that, you know, when we look at those outcomes, so for kids that age out of the foster care system, I would say kids, they're young adults. When they age out of the foster care system at 18, we see that, that I mentioned that, you know, the outcomes are just really poor. We see a high rate of homelessness, a higher rate of homelessness than would be normal, and we see a um, higher rate of unemployment. One of the ones that gets me is that less than 3% of the youth that age out of foster care are going to earn a college degree. Oh. Um, and that's not to say that a college degree is, you know, the only way to make it in life, but... The financial, it's not a financial barrier in this situation because there are actually supports and resources in place for these young adults, mm-hmm. but that's a support system issue. They, they are sorely lacking in people to help them navigate that, and they, they know they've got to be able to provide for themselves. And so, you know, spending time in school uh, may not feel as uh, effective as working, uh, you know, working at a job, but maybe it's not hiring a job and it's not going to you know, provides them well in the long run. And, you know, more than anything, we also have to recognize these are young adults that are that may not be as well connected in a support system of somebody that's going to get them a, you know, open doors and get them job interviews so that, you know, it doesn't matter if they get a college degree, they're, they're competent and they know the right people and they've got opportunities ahead of them. And so it, it really just, to me, that stands out as, as youth, young adults that are really lacking in support. And Man, I knew it all when I was 18. I, I could conquer the world. Um, mm-hmm. I now realize that I, that I didn't, but I had a support system behind me that was kind enough not to tell me how foolish I was and supportive that you know, I didn't fall flat on my face. But um, that, that, that's just really scary to me. We see a, a high rate of uh, young women that age out of the foster care system that are going to be pregnant with at least one child before their 21st birthday. Like it's a, And again... Uh, you know, uh, families choose to have children, you know, early, but without a support system, that's just much, much harder. And so um, we we want to ensure that kids have resources and support. They didn't do anything to cause this. Sometimes we look at the outcomes and we think, you know, that they somehow they were bad kids and it led them on this path. And, and we really need to remember, you know, what happened? What happened when a family and, and maybe you know, systemically, their parents also experienced, you know, abuse or neglect. They had really, you know, bad hardships in their family and things that were, the odds were stacked against them. Yeah, repeated the whole cycle for another generation, huh? It it, it 
does. And so, you know, this is a place where we can step in and foster families can help, uh, you know, someone. It's uh, Now, we love adoption. We're, we love adoption when that's the right time and that's the right place. And, and there's, there's not all the other things have been tried. A child's legally available for adoption. Um, we love to make a match that we know is permanent forever with this family. Those stores, stories are, you know, intermingled. But it's also really important that we look for ways that we can enter into a, a child story, a young adult story, a teenager story, realizing that um, forever may or may not look like adoption, but there's lots of possibilities for ways that we can um, be available and accessible, that they can have the kind of support so they don't turn into one of those statistics of, of a young adult who doesn't have anyone to turn to or doesn't um, have someone who's kind of cheering them on and helping them to, to make their way. What's the um, first What's the first contact point you normally have? you hear from the, uh, the court or do you hear from a family? Uh, we'll be contacted when a child is removed from their family. So okay. the judge has ordered the removal, and then the state will begin reaching out to all of the agencies in the area to, to you know, to ask who has a home for a sibling group of three children, ages, you know, 8, 11, and 12, or... Um, you know, whatever's kind of going on. And that happens all hours of the day and night. And so uh, we're always looking for families that represent a wide diversity of family makeups as well as interest for placement. So the families get to kind of guide that process and tell us, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, whatever age is kind of gets it for them and we're going to be assessing that we think that it's a great match and, and they'll be able to do well. And so then we would contact them about, you know, saying yes to those particular children and they could be at their home within a few hours uh, often uh, in that process. So that part happens pretty quickly, uh, but it all, it all begins really with the state and the court and kind of making those decisions. And then they reach out to agencies like us to find families in the community. I would imagine finding the right families is the hardest part. It, it, It can be. That's what we're all about is finding the right families and sharing again, sharing the story so that everybody can see how they might be part of that solution and that opportunity, uh, really in examining in themselves and then helping families to continue to stay open. So uh, a story that I love is we have um, a, a mom in Dallas that uh, as a single mom was focused on caring for girls and doing an amazing job of it. And uh, over time, she learned that a child was in her home uh, they learned that she actually had a brother that was in foster care. And so um, this mom really kind of searched herself and worked with us to figure out a plan. And um, she became, you know, open for a teenage boy. So that was very different than what she had started, you know, thinking of. But she did that so that these siblings could be together, so they could really maintain their connection and that bond. And it means the world to the kids, and she's doing great, and you know, we love those kinds of things. So we try to tell a story to help people, you know, start uh, with a level of openness and, you know, self-awareness and really considering those things, but uh, but then also kind of staying in front of people to understand what needs are out there and how they might be a real solution. And, you know, that is, a, that is an example of the way that woman has changed the world for those kids. That That is, uh, you know, for them to be able to be together and to remain connected uh, is huge in their life. Our siblings, you know, many times we think about our siblings, maybe at some point all that we have in our family uh, or, or, you know, kind of our future family. And so uh, that's that's important for those maintain, those relationships to be maintained. Yeah, they need to be grounded, you know, need to center, you know, the universe. And I think yeah. it's really great that what some of these families are doing. Um, have you ever placed like a large group of kids in one foster home? Or is it usually just one? Well, so uh, we, we, again, we work with the family on that, but many, most of the kids that we serve, they're going to be part of a sibling group. And so we want mm-hmm. families to be open to that. I've got one brother, and we're just under two years apart. And so I just have this, you know, mental image of your sibling as you and your brother close in age. But we, I, I just told you a story about a younger girl and a teenage boy. You know, that represents kind of a big span there and, and some different developmental stages. We have families that, uh, you know, make themselves available for, for wide ranges, large numbers of kids. So in a foster family, typically, you know, we may have five or even six kids in one home. Uh, and then we actually have a program in Itasca, so south of Fort Worth, uh, at our foster care village, where the families, uh, their foster families, uh, just like in the community, 
but they actually come and live on our campus at the foster care village in these large homes that we have. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and so it's it's a kind of a new way that we have uh, relaunched what used to be our, our children's home and group home campus. Um, and so they're foster families. They live with us rent-free, uh, you know, we, or we waive their rent and, and utilities and those types of things. They live in one of these homes that's well-suited for a lot of kids. But, you know, that's one of the unique factors, uh, you know, uh, for that for that uh, community is that it's a space that's well-designed for larger sibling groups so that if there are five kids, we have a, a much higher likelihood of being able to keep them together. And many families just, they would struggle with space, you know, in their home to be able to do that. So it may, may not even be a matter of interest or willingness, but they just may not have the space. And so, you know, we're, we've tried to eliminate that barrier and looking for kind of a new way to do that. So that's a foster care village is a, is a neat, neat way that we're serving and it creates a small community of fostering families that are all together able to really support each other. We've got staff on site that offers a lot of, um, you know, close care and support for them and, and backup, but they are the foster parents. They leave their home and, and they get to be, you know, the, the parent to, you know, fit that mom and dad role um, for kids while they're in foster care uh, in, in a space where everybody can kind of know and love them and, and be closely connected. Now, Travis, is this government-funded, or are you looking for uh, funding or people to help underwrite? People have helped our organization to do so many things, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and but we also do receive some government funding uh, for this for this program, so it's a contract with the state to be able to provide foster care services. Mm-hmm. Uh, although everybody acknowledges it's really kind of not enough, and so that's where we're super grateful for the generosity of those that that donate to Presbyterian Children's Homes and Services because they help us to be able to offer the foster families a little bit more in resource than um, would the state would you know would set as a minimum, and uh, it also means that we're able to keep. Um, you know, hire staff that are that are often a little um, more qualified, and uh, you know, work to do things like keeping their their workloads manageable, so that they can provide a lot of availability to their families and responsiveness, and and that so goes a long way um, when families are just trying to navigate all the ins and outs of parenting. And sometimes, you know, there's some other challenges that may come along just because of special needs for children. Plus, you've got you know, legal stuff in court and all these other people, you know, needing information, and so. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a great thing that we're able to keep our staff really responsive to help our help our families walk through and navigate. Travis, this is all very inspiring. Somebody listening right now wants to get involved. Maybe they want to be foster parents, or maybe they're not quite sure and want to get more information. What do you recommend they do? So the best thing that you can do right now, and and this, and even if somebody's saying, "I don't know about that," um, pchas.org, P-C-H-A-S.org is our website. P-C-H-A-S. You call it P-C-H-A-S. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, Presbyterian Children's Home Services, P-C-H-A-S.org. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, you're going you're gonna to see a, a big image of a family sitting around a table that says become a foster adoptive family. If you click right there, mm-hmm. it's going to lead you to a link for what we have called online info sessions. And we offer those at least once a week with different days of the time, and they're, they're online, and they're about an hour long, so you can sit at home in your pajamas. You don't even have to be on the camera. And we start to walk <laughs> families through the process to give more information and, and let you take kind of a first look at that. You're also welcome to give us a call. If you say, I don't need to hear about that. I'm just ready to do it. Uh, yeah. 1-800-888-1904 is our number. And we love to hear from folks that say, I'm, I'm all in. Let's get started. And so our foster care and adoption guys, uh, are happy to talk with people and just help them, you know, kind of understand the process and get them started. Uh, we provide these services in Dallas and you know, Dallas-Fort Worth area, but we're also located in Austin, Houston, and in Wichita Falls, which isn't very far away. So um, we have, you know, we have the ability to, to help families in a number of different places in the state. So those online info sessions at teachhouse.org, a great place to sign up. They're free. They're easy. We've got We've got one uh, at 9 o'clock in the evening and lunchtime one. And, you know, we've got different uh, Saturday event coming up uh, in, later in the month of June. And so uh, families can find something that will work for their schedule. And, and like I said, even if you're someone who thinks maybe this isn't right for me or I'm not so sure, come, come learn because it's a great way to maybe, maybe there's someone else that you'll think of that, you, that you'll be able to share more information exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah, and, and pass it along, because that's one of those ways that all of us can do something about finding homes for kids. Change the whole world one kid at a time. 
sometimes more. That's right. We we all have a role. We don't know. We may not know exactly what it is, but uh, there there is something we can be doing. Uh, this is a pretty easy step. Oh, okay. The phone number again: eight hundred. 888-1904, the online info sessions at pchas.org. Pchas, their nickname. That's right. Facebook and Twitter, right? That's right. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. The events are there uh, as well on Facebook. You can see all of those and sign up online. Uh, all that's available uh, to you there, too. That's great. Well, I've learned a lot. That's for darn sure. Travis Jones. Director of Community Engagement, Presbyterian Children's Homes and Services in the DFW area. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, and we hope a lot of people get in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. I appreciate it so much. For Entercom Radio, I'm Jim Zippo from 98.7 KLOV. Thanks for joining us. Be sure and tune in again next week as we focus on other organizations doing awesome things in our community right here on Better Living. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.